2: Remember, remember, the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason and plot. It's funny, isn't it, how, as with divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived. There are some parts of British history that have become so familiar to us that they're even encapsulated in children's rhymes. Because of that, I think it can be easy to fail to put them in their proper chronological context or to understand quite how devastating and important they were or might have been. The Gunpowder Plot is one of the hinge events of British history, an act of terror that stretches back for its roots into the Tudor period and forward for its legacy to the Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, and well beyond. It's a story of holy war, religious hatred, divided loyalties, and the clash between security and freedom. It's never been more timely. The guest who joins me today to talk about the gunpowder plot is Jessie Childs. Jessie is an award-winning author. Her book, God's Traitors, Terror and Faith in Elizabethan England, won the prestigious Penn Hessel Tiltman Prize for History and was a book of the year in The Times, The Sunday Times, Daily Telegraph, Observer, and BBC History magazine. Jessie holds a first in history from Brazenose College, Oxford, and has contributed to numerous TV documentaries on the BBC. Her first book, Henry VIII's Last Victim, examined the fall of Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, just before Henry VIII died, while her next book, provisionally called The Siege of Loyalty House, will be out next year and leaps forward to the British Civil War. She's a top-flight historian, a scholar of great integrity and dedication and a storyteller of great skill. She's also one of my favourite people in the field, so I'm delighted to welcome her to Not Just the Tudors. It is an absolute delight, as ever, to see you and to have a chance to chat here history. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. So today we're going to talk about the gunpowder plot and what I was hoping we could do, Jesse, is that we could think about it in context because so often it's kind of plucked out of history as an event and not thought about in terms of the sort of run-up to it. And in your wonderful book, God's Traitors, you talk about it as being part of a rather murky corner of England's past that was for a long time kept hidden. So perhaps you could start by telling us a bit about this murky corner. What do you mean?
3: Well, especially in popular culture, we love the Tudors and we sort of put them in a pedestal and we go around the palaces and people can dress up and it's all about Drake and Raleigh and the Gloriana and Good Queen Bess and that is all great and important. But I think if we want to get a rounded sense of our past, we have to understand the underbelly, I suppose, of Elizabeth's reign. And I think when I was writing, and this is a while ago now, it's 2014 that it came out. It wasn't spoken about so much. I think now that terror and faith are very, very important again and in the news again, it's not news that Elizabeth persecuted Catholics, but I think it still is almost sort of slightly black and white. People say, well, England was at war with Spain from 1585. Therefore, Catholics were seen as the enemy within. And there was a small minority who were plotters and they deserved the persecution and everything they got. And I, with my book, was looking at a family who were very much sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. So I think I'm sort of trying to say that it's grey and it's muddy and it's very difficult to figure out loyalties and very difficult for ordinary Catholics to Experience this reign. It's not a golden age for them.
2: Absolutely. And it's obvious but important to point out that although the gunpowder plot happens in 1605 and it's in the reign of James I, the story leading up to it is Elizabethan. And as you say, you've explored this through one family, the Vaux family. Could you introduce us to them?
3: Yes, absolutely. So the Vauxes are cousins to Robert Catesby, they call him Robin. They're very close to him, very dear, and also to one of the other plotters, Francis Tresham. They're cousins with him too. The whole gunpowder plot network is this sort of trellis of Catholicism in the Midlands. It's all sort of Shakespeare country, and they're very interconnected, all of them. The Catesbys and the Treshams and the Vauxers particularly, it all sort of starts with them in 1581, when the fathers, we're talking about the first generation, of Catholics in Elizabethan England are arrested for harbouring Edmund Campion, who was a Jesuit priest. It all starts really in the 1580s. Elizabeth I is excommunicated in 1570. There are other plots before, but in the 1580, the Jesuit priests come in. Edmund Campion was this celebrated, brilliant speaker, but he'd converted to Catholicism. He'd trained abroad as a priest. He came back in disguise as a jewel merchant and they put him up in their houses, these fathers, William Vaux, Thomas Tresham and William Catesby. And they were arrested for it and they were imprisoned for it. So there's this bond that goes back at least till 1581 with these fathers. So what you get with the second generation, with Francis Tresham, with Robin Catesby and the Vaux family, especially Robert Catesby, is this sense of frustration. They've seen their fathers broken by imprisonment, by fines. They've seen their fathers try really quite hard to be loyal to the Queen and to the Pope. And they haven't got anywhere. And they are branded non-subjects. In 1588, the Armada threatens the shores. And these three men, again, are arrested. And they're detained because they are a security risk. They're seen as a fifth column. Thomas Tresham described his life as moth-eaten. He said he was drenched in a sea of shameless slanders. So you get to the end of Elizabeth's reign and they are so demoralized and disenfranchised, these young men, they're angry young men and they want to do something about it. They don't want to wait around. They think James Sixth of Scotland might be the answer. He is after all, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who is a sort of Catholic martyr in their eyes. And they hope that there will be a relaxation of the penalties against Catholics, which include fines for not going to church, which include not even being allowed a priest in your house. And at first it seems quite promising. One of Thomas Percy, who ends up being a gunpowder plotter, he actually goes to Scotland before James VI becomes James I of England. And he thinks he's been given a guarantee of toleration from James. James did no such thing. He's a clever man. He let him believe that. But it's that sense of hope And they had this hope that it might get better. And then quite soon after the honeymoon period, the fines are reintroduced, um, the priests outlawed again. And so it's this absolute fury that after all these years in Elizabeth's reign of waiting, they haven't got anything out of it. And so something must be done. Let's explore a
2: little bit more about that sense of being a Catholic in those last decades of the 16th century, or indeed the first few years of the 17th. It seems like there was a real choice for Catholics to make between being loyal to their faith and being loyal to the crown.
3: Do you have a sense of what the experience of that was like for Catholics? It's very hard. And in some ways, well, it's the English state's fault, but it's also the Pope. Elizabeth I is excommunicated by the Pope in 1570. And it is at that moment, that decision that makes it so hard for Catholics because they are told that they have to disobey her. A pain of anathema, a pain of being excommunicated themselves. So what you get with a lot of Catholics is the equivalent of sort of crossing your fingers. They would go to church but they would mentally qualify something in their head and say I'm not believing, I'm not listening. One person actually put cloth in their ears every time they went to church. <laughs> Other people might go and hear the mass at home quietly afterwards and so they'd make their sort of little mini individual rebellions and they thought that that would be okay with God, and hopefully they would still go to heaven. They were known derisively as church papists by the recusants, and the recusants are the refusers. It comes from the Latin, recusare to refuse. They don't go to church. They're told by Rome in no uncertain terms that this is not allowed, and therefore they will follow that by the letter. And so you get this very small minority, I mean, we're talking thousands, a tiny, tiny percentage of the population, but they're very hard line and they see it as an important sort of path to salvation. There's no other way. And it's not only a passive rebellion, not going to church, they also have to have priests. And what you get in 1585 is an act passed by the English state that states that any English priest who had been ordained abroad since the reign of Elizabeth, who even set foot on English soil, is automatically deemed a traitor and they will be hanged, drawn and quartered if they are caught on English soil. So for a Catholic who wants to hear the mass, who wants to have the last rites, you know, these are not ridiculous demands. This is just wanting to worship freely. They can't do that. You need a priest. You need an agent of sacramental grace. So they are very much caught between a rock and a hard place. And a lot of them, not all of them, did want to be loyal to their queen. They didn't want to be rebels, but the legislation pushes them into it. Elizabeth's godson, Sir John Harrington said, I think it's such a sort of canny thing. He said, I don't know what came first, whether it was the rebellions, the plots, the conspiracies, the excommunication from Rome that brought on these harsh, harsh laws, or was it these harsh, harsh laws that pushed the Catholics into rebellion? But in the end, he says, acts of religion come to be treason. So that's what's canny about Elizabeth's government. If you look at the reign of her sister, Mary, before, if you didn't believe in the Catholic faith, you were a heretic and you would be burnt for that. In Elizabeth's reign, it's far more nuanced. She always said that she never wanted to force consciences. People were only persecuted, people were only fined, imprisoned, tortured, if they were political traitors, if they disobeyed her politically. But to disobey her politically in this age is to have a priest for example. So it's very tricky and it's not an easy one to say whether she's moderate or not. It's certainly not a tolerant age.
2: That's exactly what I was wondering because one of the things that's often said about Elizabeth is that she's got this reputation for tolerance and the not making windows into men's souls line is often trotted out. Do you think that's a reputation that's exaggerated?
3: I think it's been said so much it's been so oft actually misquoted because it was first of all it was Francis Bacon who said it at the end of the reign about her and he said hearts and secret thoughts she didn't want to make windows into people's hearts and secret thoughts now is that the same as souls probably but it might not be it's not quite the seat of salvation in the same way on the other hand I think relatively speaking when you look at Europe When you look at the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day in France, for example, when you look at what's going on in the Low Countries and you look at Counter-Reformation Church, Elizabeth is moderate. And I think she was genuinely true, and I think we can believe her when she said she didn't want to force consciences. Her own faith is very hard to pin down. She's being called a sort of old sort of Protestant. She had the chapel royal, she liked the candlesticks, she liked all that. She was actually quite lenient to... Catholic she knew and liked. So I think on an individual basis, and if she could have possibly helped it, if she hadn't been excommunicated, if there hadn't been the Northern Rebellion in 1569, if there hadn't been in the 1580s, pretty much a continuum of plots against her, assassination attempts, then they wouldn't have gone down this route. But she had some very hard men alongside her, for better or worse. You have William Cecil, Baron Burley. Lord Treasurer, but you also have Sir Francis Walsingham, who is seen as her spymaster. It's an anachronistic term, but it sort of fits her secretary of state. And he had been in Paris on secondment with the English embassy there in 1572, when there was the massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day. Now, this was the slaughter of thousands of French Protestants, the Huguenots. And the river Seine was said to run red with blood. I remember it now, even though this research was a long time ago, but the Spanish ambassador in Paris at the time was reporting this massacre to Philip II of Spain. And he wrote, as I write, they're killing them all. They are dragging them through the streets. They're sparing not even a baby. And you kind of think, "All right, I'm waiting for the official condemnation of how awful this is, and not a bit of it. He says, blessed be God who has converted the French princes to our cause. May he inspire their hearts to continue as they have begun. So this language of holy war is what Elizabeth and her state are having to deal with. And Francis Walsian was there. You can understand why he has this visceral fear and hatred of, Catholicism. For a lot of people, Catholicism is popery. It's not just the Roman Catholic faith. It is a political thing. It is a tyrannical thing. And it is Spanish and it is Roman. It is inquisitorial and it is bloody and it is ruthless. So, this is what Elizabeth is having to confront. So, I think she did her best, but it is impossible. That's a
2: very fascinating and characteristically nuanced position. Thank you for that. I'm really struck also with the contrast with her father, in that Henry was very keen on making windows into men's secret thoughts. He wanted people to be convinced in their conscience about the break with Rome and his decision to do that. So there is a distinction there, I suppose, between the two of them. But not pressing for. Such obedience as he did, if he's wanting everyone to be on board, you know, to have no scrupulosities of conscience is what they're supposed to swear to with the oath in support of Anne Boleyn and defying Catherine of Aragon and saying that Lady Mary is butters the bastard. I was always struck by that phrase, thus to do without any scrupulosity of conscience, they're not even allowed to think something different. Whereas perhaps Elizabeth is creating some space for difference of thought, at least, if not practice.
3: Yes, I think you're right. God, try saying that after five pints a hundred times. Scrupulosities <laughs> of conscience—that's amazing. I think she would rather not have this problem, quite frankly. But this is the age of holy war, and she has these chaps around her. On the other hand, whenever I start sort of thinking, you know, what she really did try—and she did temper some of the worst policies. I mean, there was Catholics had to go to church every week; they had to go to the official Protestant ceremonies, but they weren't actually forced to take communion. And that was one of the proposals that was put to her. And she kiboshed that. There was another one to take away Catholic children. And she put the curb on that as well. So there are times when you think she is tempering them. On the other hand, you know, just when I start melting towards her a bit, I think about Richard Topcliffe, who was her unofficial persevant, which was the word of the time for a priest hunter. But he was an absolute sadist you know, he loved chasing priests. He had a torture chamber in his own house and he would write these very sort of weird letters to Elizabeth telling her about the torture he was going to inflict. And he answered directly to her and she knew what he was doing. And therefore she sanctioned the torture of Richard Suthill, for example, a Jesuit priest. We don't have it in writing, but she could have stopped it. You know, he would even describe his torture. He said it was like a trick at Trenchmore, which was, you know, one of the court dances. He's describing how he's going to manacle this priest with the handcuffs and tie him up and have him hanging. Effectively, stress standing position. I mean, things haven't changed. So I think her relationship with him is very odd. And I sort of think she's quite good, just like her father was at having scapegoats.
2: That's really interesting. And in itself, something of a hidden story about Elizabeth... You also, in your book, draw attention to the fact that in this male-dominated age, and we've got these characters around Elizabeth pressing on for further reformation and further persecution, that actually we do have women being active in the Catholic faith and playing a real role and using their sphere of influence to change things. And that seems to me another little hidden story here. Tell us about the women that you discovered in the Vaux family.
3: Okay. they the most interesting, I think. There are three sisters, but especially two blood sisters, Eleanor Britzby Britsby and Anne Vaux. And their codenames were the Widow and the Virgin. And they were pretty amazing, actually. They helped run the Jesuit mission in England. There were missionary priests who had come from 1574 onwards, but the Jesuit mission, as I said, starts with Campion in 1580. And that's when they get really serious. They have safe houses, they have networks... They greet the priests off the boat, they give them a disguise, they give them places to go. The women would travel with Henry Garnet, who was the superior, he was the head of the Jesuits. They stuck with him for 20 odd years and they would travel with him. So it seemed more innocuous. They funded him, they had a lot of money. They would channel that and they would be the fronts of these houses. So when there were raids and there were lots of them, they would answer the door and they would be the ones who were sort of making the Persevance feel uncomfortable about searching their house while the priests are hiding in a priest hole below. There was a very famous raid in 1591 with these sisters. It was in Battersea, Clinton in Warwickshire. It's this lovely house, it's National Trust, you can go and see it now. And they'd actually had a Jesuit meeting, so there were quite a few Jesuits there. They had these annual meetings, high risk but important, to share stories, share intelligence. And it was very early in the morning they heard the characteristic banging on the door. It was often early in the morning when they were about to say mass. They wanted to catch them. So the priests all ran into this sewer hide. It was sort of a drain. Nine of them knee deep in water for hours. And Anne Vaux is the one who opens the door. Finally, after they've been banging for ages and she knows it's safe, they even also upturned all the beds so that they wouldn't feel warm to the touch and it wouldn't betray the fact that more people had slept in the bed that night than can be accounted for. So they'd done all that and they'd hidden the chalices and the altar stuff and all of that and the vestments. She finally opens the door and these Persevants, you know, quite terrifying. They've got their weapons and high stakes. And Anne says, you know, how dare you come to my house so early? How dare you? Why do you keep coming in this hostile manner when the children and the servants are not even out of bed yet? And it does sort of make them squeamish. You know, this is not how you should behave to women. Nevertheless, they search the house and she's just yapping at them all the way through, haranguing them. She says later that they were like a party of boys playing blind man's buff who know that they're, Playmates are hiding somewhere, but they just can't find them. And then ours, this goes on for, and then she gives them breakfast and a bribe. And finally, when it's safe, she lets them out. And Henry Garnet said of her, he was so full of admiration, she was not well. She had chronic ill health. But he said, though she has all a maiden's modesty and even shyness, yet in God's cause and in the protection of his servants, Virgo becomes Virago. And it's this sense that these sort of mainly women become warrior men almost. You know, that's how you privilege them with praise in the 16th century, in a way. They have to be sort of masculine women either that or I mean the other thing there are all these sort of misogynistic tropes that are interesting that are directed at these women I mean the other one very obviously is they're sort of labeled hot holy ladies and basically sort of silly sluts who keep priests in their closets and there's a lot of that that goes on very tedious and always being you know accused of having an affair with Henry Garnet the head of the Jesuits which is just absolute rubbish and the other thing is that they're sort of seen as silly little ladies who sort of quack after these men so you get all the tropes But they are really quite formidable. And because they are women, they get to fly under the radar, you know, in a way that men just don't. I mean, they don't have the same legal status. They're not fined, especially if you're a married woman all your property belongs to your husband. So it's much easier, actually, for a woman to provide protection to the priests.
2: It's a really fascinating story. And actually, as you were telling it, I was struck for the first time in thinking about priest holes and pursuivants and raids by the parallels with deep sigh, sorry everybody, Nazi Germany and Nazi Europe and thinking about, you know, the Anne Frank story and all of these stories that we know about Jewish people going into hiding and being tracked down. And I hadn't really quite thought of how it must have been to experience that in Elizabethan England. I think sometimes priest holes, they're such a sort of attraction in historic houses. And there's a sort of like, oh, it's the priesthood kind of feel about it. And the way that you were telling that gave me a moment of pause to think about this actually as a real threat on these people's lives and their freedom of conscience.
3: Yeah, it's absolutely right. A lot of the Jesuit Catholic literature came out in the 1930s and 40s. And those parallels were drawn at the time. And it seemed very, very stark. And I think you're right also about these houses, you know, how do you get children involved in these stories? Well, you know, it's fun to hide in a priest hole and all that kind of stuff, but it's really pretty terrifying and there are first-hand accounts by the priests saying how utterly terrifying it is to experience this and how they have to sort of go deep into themselves and draw into their training and become very meditative and almost sort of think of the passion of Christ. Certainly John Gerard, one of the very sort of charismatic Jesuit priests who wrote his memoirs, all about escapes. But when he's talking about when he was tortured in the Tower of London, he talks about almost undergoing a sort of passion experience. And that's how they coped. They were single minded about the cause, frighteningly so. They were prepared to be martyrs. In fact, some of them actively wanted to be martyrs. So they said anyway. And so you are dealing with this mindset. There is a sense, of course, they didn't want to be there, but they are missionary priests and they took the risks. Whereas, of course, Anne Frank and so many Jewish civilians didn't have that choice. It's impossible to know, isn't it? The knocking. And also sometimes they would bring sniffer dogs. There are accounts also from the state giving instructions on how you find these priesthoods, how you take your measuring rods, what to look out for, especially attics, you know, measure the angles, knock for hollow bits, look at the wainscoting. And so I think it must have just been horrendous to wait there and know that you would be tortured and you would be executed if you were caught. And for the lay people who had them in the house, the law was that if you were caught harboring priests, then you would swing for it too. So there were about 200 people who were executed in Elizabeth's reign, mainly for being or for harbouring priests, mainly for being, but about 60 odd laymen and women. And so you get actually the situation with Margaret Clitheroe in 1586, which was particularly horrendous. She refused to plead to the charge of priest harbouring. No priest was ever found in her house, but she was deeply suspected and priesthoods were. But for refusing to plead to the charge, the old medieval penalty of peine fortitude was imposed on her, which literally means to be pressed to death. And so she was ordered to lie down, and a door was placed on top of her, and weights were put on top of the door until her ribs crushed. So, you know, we are talking about real terror and horror.
2: You mentioned that many of the sources were being replicated, perhaps, in the 1930s and 40s. And one thing I was really struck by is the sort of sources that you've used for this work. Can you tell us a bit about the Tresham Papers and that enigmatic 17th century manuscript you read in the Bodleian?
3: Oh, yes, that was wonderful. In the Bodleian, there is this huge book. It's sort of almost like an encyclopedia of Catholic knowledge and memory. And it says at the beginning that it has been bound up with a string of secrecy until some happy time when it can be untied and read and it was it was kept by the Brudenell family of Dean and it was kept by them for many many years until the Bodleian acquired it so you sit in these university desks in the library and you read this amazing stuff that was risky to record this stuff it's martyrdom stories people's letters it's songs that were sung to keep the faith and it's incredibly transportative the same with the Tresham Papers This is another sort of aspect that I do actually love about this subject. So many things are discovered. So you get priest holes that are still recently, only recently being discovered. The best being a swinging beam hide at Harvington Hall, which was discovered by a little boy exploring. But the Tresham papers was builders, often it's builders. And they were just knocking through a wall. And suddenly all these books tumbled out. And these were the Tresham papers. And... This is the family that is very much related to the Vaux family I was writing about. One of them, Francis Tresham, was the last man to be recruited to the gunpowder plot. The weak link, really, quite possibly the leak with the plot. And he was recruited in October 1605, a month after his father had died. And the month after that was the gunpowder plot. And it was at this time that all the papers and books were bundled up and they were put just above this lintel in a doorway and and bricked in. And so it's kind of amazing. It's a sort of time capsule.
2: Yes, I recently went to Rushton Lodge for the first time, which, for those who don't know, is the work of Sir Thomas Tresham. And it's this extraordinary, curious building, triangular. And it's triangular because it's a religious statement in stone. It's expressing the Holy Trinity. It's got the three sides and three gables on each side and three windows and all these biblical inscriptions. It's... It's a very interesting and slightly strange
3: place. It is. It's almost Dan Brown, isn't it? It's very mystic. And actually, a lot of those codes still haven't been translated yet and solved. There is something incredibly mystical about Tresham, as well as a huge ego. His name, Trez... Is a play on the Trinity as well. Tresem I am three, and he quite liked that. And not far away, a few miles away, he has another building, a bit like the triangular lodge, except it's built in the shape of a Greek cross, and it's at Livedon Newbold. And that is his monument to the Passion of Christ as well. So interesting that he can get away with that. You know, we're talking about people being persecuted. He was a very wealthy landowner. He had a lot of contacts and you can sort of get away with expressing your faith even to the extent of doing that of sort of having it on the landscape irritating all the protestants and all your protestant tenants but as long as you aren't caught harboring a priest or as long as you pay the fines that you're made to do then you can get away with quite a lot actually it's more the catholics like margaret clitheroe the wife of a butcher who really struggled and the many many catholics especially in the north of england of whom we don't have any records or witness statements in the same way. So I'm writing because of the sources, mainly about the gentry. But I wish I knew more about the lower orders of society.
2: Those who couldn't afford to pay the fines.
0: Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy Landings and 9-11 we reveal new perspectives on how war has
2: shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world
0: to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then
3: what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that.
0: Revolutionary technologies.
3: At the time the weapons were tested, there was this you know, perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead.
0: And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either
2: swamp the place In trillion dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it.
0: And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
2: Gentry and aristocratic families in the Midlands who are Catholic, who are bound by kinship ties. And how does this network of families who are devoted to Catholicism play into the plot of 1605?
3: They know each other so well. They've grown up together, a lot of them, Tresham and Catesby particularly. Quite a few of them, I'm thinking, Catesby, Tresham and the two Wright brothers, Jack Wright and Kit Wright, they were arrested in 1601 with the Earl of Essex's rebellion, two years before Elizabeth died. So they're quite used also, when Elizabeth does die, a lot of them are rounded up and detained. They know each other through geography, through this Midlands network. It's all sort of Shakespeare country. They know each other also through family. So brothers-in-law, cousins, And then they bring in Guy Fawkes, who's in a way the old one out, who is the militant. He's the one who's been soldiering abroad for over 10 years, actually. So people don't know what he looks like. That's why he's handy. But the Wright brothers have been at school with him in Yorkshire. So there's a Yorkshire element as well. They all hope for this new golden age with James. And when it doesn't happen, there is this sense among these angry young men. Well, not that young. They're sort of early 30s, most of them. But now is the time to do something. John Gerard, one of the priests, likened it to being in a dark room for a really long time. And then there's this flash of lightning and there's hope. And then suddenly when that fades, in the end, it feels darker than it ever had before. And it's that sense of fury and impatience and vengeance with Thomas Percy, who'd ridden to James just before he became king and thought he'd secured this guarantee of toleration from James. Fury, it's time to do something about it. And the key meeting that happens, there's actually, it starts with just five people. It's Robin Catesby, Thomas Percy, Thomas Winter, who's another good friend of Catesby, whose uncle actually had been a priest who'd been executed. Jack Wright and Guy Fawkes, the key meeting is in May 1604. They meet at the Duck and Drake Tavern, popularly thought to be, just off the Strand, And it's there that Catesby says that the nature of the disease requires so sharp a remedy. So what he's saying is we've tried everything and this is our last resort. And this is when he says we will blow up the Parliament House with powder. And he says, because that is the place where they have done us all the mischief. And that is the place that God has reserved for their punishment, which is... I mean, not unlike 9-11, you know, they are targeting the seat and the symbols of power, Washington and New York. For Catesby, it's Westminster. And what this would mean at the state opening of Parliament would be the king, the queen, the princes, the lords, the bishops, the MPs, the judges, also all the records. So how do you efface a society and a culture? You get rid of the records. All the parliamentary archives would have gone up to anything within sort of a hundred meters it's been estimated would have gone up. all the people would have died there, so this is incredibly radical, but they sort of feel that they've tried everything else.
2: That's really helpful because you've given us a sense of the catalyst, this hope deferred makes the heart sick idea that they had you know hoped and waited, and then it 's their disappointment. That is the thing that really provokes them. But also, I had never really understood before what they hoped to achieve. I always thought this was just a grand protest. But actually, the destruction of records is really crucial, isn't it? And you can't move forwards with that legislation if the legislation no longer exists physically.
3: Yes, exactly. I think they see themselves, these Catholics, as the early Christians, you know, the first Christians who have been persecuted. And I think they sort of want to get back to this pristine world where they can worship freely and not have all this stain that has come on since the break with Rome, since the Reformation. I mean, obviously it's balmy. I mean, I don't think it was ever, ever going to work. You might have had the explosion when it was at that stage, when it's a five-man plot. You could have had, it's anachronistic to say, an act of terror. It is an act of terror. But what happens is Parliament is prorogued because of plague. And so everything is delayed. And Catesby has these wild ideas about taking over the government. I don't think he'd really thought through what he was going to do afterwards. I think it was an act of vengeance, an act of fury, an act of terror. Then he starts thinking, okay, well, let's have a Catholic government. Let's start again. You know, we've wiped the slate clean, what are we going to build up? And that's when it becomes really unfeasible. I think. Not only because you bring in more people and so it's more likely to be betrayed, but there just aren't enough Catholics in the country who no one is going to support a new government built on terror.
2: So talk us through the timeline then. We have this meeting in May 1604. How does it transpire after that?
3: So Thomas Percy, who's the best connected of the five in terms of the government, he is a kinsman of the Earl of Northumberland. And he becomes actually, ironically, a gentleman pensioner. He almost has a security role around Westminster. So it's very easy for him. He takes the lease on a house in Westminster. And so they start this process of moving gunpowder up from the mills in Rotherhithe, upriver, to his lodgings in Westminster. Guy Fawkes is great for this because he has been soldiering abroad for over a decade. He knows about siege warfare. He knows about gunpowder. He knows about how to set a fuse. So they're very careful with this gunpowder. It takes a while. They row it up and they bring in a couple of other people to help them at this point. They bring in Catesby's servant, Bates, and another chap called Robert Keyes, who's a gentleman from Lincolnshire. We don't know that much about him, actually. So now there are seven. Then Parliament is prorogued. And they have this extra time. So they actually go to the Midlands and they start thinking, okay, we're going to have a second phase of this plot. We're going to have a Midlands revolt. And we're going to take over the government. And we're going to have this cavalry party under the guise of a hunting party in the Midlands. They have the whole summer and they start bringing in more people. They bring in Tom Winter's brother, Robert Winter, who has a house in Huddington in Worcestershire. They bring in their brother-in-law, John Grant. He has a house in Norbrook, which is very near Stratford-on-Avon. And they also bring in Kit Wright, who is the brother of Jack Wright. So again, it's just slowly expanding, but it's still sort of kinship ties. It's still family. It's still a fairly closed circle. The problem is towards the autumn, when they decide that they need more money. I mean, this is all getting quite costly. They need to pay for the lease, they need horses, they need weapons. And this is when they bring in three more men. Everard Dibby, a glamorous Catholic convert from Buckinghamshire. Ambrose Rookwood, who's from Suffolk, he has horses, that's very important. And finally at the end, Francis Tresham, he is recruited right at the end, just after his father's death in September, probably a month before the discovery of the plot. And he is appalled and he tries to dissuade Catesby. He's not the first, the priests have also got wind of it. I think through this whole sort of Midland summer, people are starting to think, oh hell, what are we doing? And there are doubts creeping in. Some of the plotters talk to their priests in confession and worry about it. Catesby himself is not immune. He has a word with Henry Garnet, the head of the Jesuits, and he has a sort of hypothetical conversation with him. And he sort of says, is it ever permissible to kill innocents? Is it ever, ever okay?" And Henry Garnet says in a just war, you know, it can be. It's collateral damage, effectively. And Garnet worries about this a lot afterwards. He sort of thinks, why am I being asked this? And then later, Catesby has a confession to his priest, Oswald Tesemond. Tesmond now knows about the gunpowder plot. He doesn't want to keep this burden. So he offloads it onto Henry Garnet. But it's not a proper confession. It's a walking confession. And a lot is made about this later. But Garnet now knows about the plot, but he never revealed it. And he said because he could not break the seal of the confessional, which is a huge deal for a Catholic priest, he did everything else he could do. He wrote to Rome. He said, there is a plan. There is a danger. The Pope had already issued a general prohibition against Sturs. Garnet asked him to issue another one, a specific one, which he didn't do. He said the general one was enough. Garnet kept trying to seek out Catesby and stop him. Catesby was trying to avoid him. But in the end, Garnet got Catesby to agree that Garnet would send a man over to Rome and ask the Pope about this. And Catesby promised he wouldn't do a single thing until he came back, which he did not mean. So he decided to ignore the priests at this stage. He decided to break away from Rome too, in a sense. They are this pack of wolves now and they are not listening to their religious masters at all. The plot is leaking. More and more people are knowing about it. The women are finding out about it. So there's a pilgrimage that happens in Wales to St. Winifred's Well. It happens right at the end of August and into September. And it is Henry Garnet, the head of the Jesuits. It's Anne Vaux, who we we're speaking about for. And it is Lady Digby, who is the wife of Everard Digby. And Ambrose Rookwood is the only plotter who's with them, with his wife. But as they go along, they stay at some of the plotters' houses. They stay at John Grant's house. They stay at Robert Winter's. And Anne Vaux realises that there are some war horses here. There are a lot of very, very fine horses in the stables. And she also senses the atmosphere. And she says to Garnet, these wild heads have something in hand. For God's sake, talk to Catesby and stop him. And Garnet can't do it. It's
2: interesting isn't it, that actually the delay has been the thing that causes people to doubt, it causes the sort of growth in the number of conspirators, which is always going to increase the chances of leakage, and it's people's worries that are meaning that they're talking to others about it, and even somebody like Anne Walks can move through the space and recognise that something is going on. So it does seem pretty faulty as a plan by this point in time. Now, of course, we know, ultimately, the story goes that Guy Fawkes is caught red-handed. But how does it really fall apart?
3: It's mad. At this stage, you sort of think, don't do it. But especially with Catesby, I think Catesby must have been the most extraordinarily mesmeric, charismatic figure. He's described as sort of six foot tall and incredibly good looking. And people say how they will follow him to death. I mean, I think, you know, talking about his appearance sounds trivial, but I don't think it is. I think he has this sort of almost messianic power over people. And he is still entirely convinced that this is what God wants him to do. And I think that's a very powerful force. There is a sign also in March 1605. There is a room that is directly underneath the House of Lords. It's not a cellar. It's a ground floor vault. The House of Lords is on the first floor and the lease comes up. And so Thomas Percy scoops it up. And this is seen by them all as this divine sign that God is smiling on this enterprise because, wow, what a coup. So now all they have to do is move the gunpowder over there directly underneath the House of Lords and boom. And they feel that this is a providential thing. But it does unravel and it unravels, I think, almost entirely, although it's always going to be disputed and we'll never quite know. But I think it's because of Tresham. I think it's because of this last very reluctant recruit. He immediately said to Catesby, I don't want anything to do with this. He tried to give Catesby money to leave the country. He was exceeding earnest, quote, to warn Lord Monteagle, his brother-in-law, who would have been in the Parliament House at the opening. And what happens on the 26th of October is that Lord Monteagle... In his house in Hoxton, which is a village about a mile from London, his servant is handed a letter. And this is the very famous Montego letter, which is written in a disguised hand. It's not signed. And it basically warns him not to go to the Parliament House at the opening because those who will will receive a terrible blow and they will not see where it comes from. The writer also said, burn this letter, which he, of course, didn't do. It's now in the National Archives. But this is the thing. And what's also even more crazy that Catesby carries on with it is that they know about this letter. There's a spy in Monteagle's household who immediately tells Catesby that this letter has been given to Monteagle. Monteagle's immediately handed it over to Robert Cecil, who is the Secretary of State. And so the government is aware of it. Everything is rolling on that side. And yet Catesby still thinks it's okay, we can carry on. They confront Tresham. They say, this must have been you. He swears blind that it wasn't him. And they sort of half believe him. You get to the 4th of November, and Thomas Percy goes and has dinner at Sion House in Isleworth with his kinsman, the Earl of Northumberland. And he reports back to Catesby and says, no, 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 no one's talking about it. You know, it's going to be one of those little plots on the radar that people are hearing about all the time. The government does not have the resources to investigate everything, as with today. You know, carry on, carry on. And so they do. Unbelievably, they do. And in the meantime, Cecil, who I'm pretty sure has been keeping a little eye on this for a while. But it's just a case of when do you activate it? When do you intervene and capture everyone? He takes it to James, who's hunting. When James gets back from hunting, James, whose father, Lord Darnley, had been blown up in his own gunpowder plot at Kirkerfield many years before. He immediately smells gunpowder. This is the official version. James gets all the credit for understanding the letter. And so there are searches. There is one search of the House of Lords undertaken by the Earl of Suffolk and Lord Monteagle. And they see Guy Fawkes there. He's waiting there. He's spurred. He's got a huge pile of firewood. But they just carry on. And It's all reported back to James and he says, no, look again. And it's the second search just after midnight on the 4th of November, 4th, 5th of November, that Guy Fawkes then is discovered. He's got a watch, he's got a match, he's got 36 barrels of gunpowder, and he says his name is John Johnson.
2: It's an incredible story. And it feels like it, despite all of the leaks, despite this prevarication and you know, people's hesitancy, it looks like it could well have gone ahead if it hadn't been for that letter and for James's conviction. I mean, do you buy that story that it's James pushing it? You sounded rather doubtful about that?
3: I do sound a bit doubtful. I think James is a very bright man and I have no doubt that he would have understood and read gunpowder in that letter. I think most people would to be honest. But I also think perhaps Cecil had understood this too and allowed James to get the credit for discovering it, let's say. I mean, this is all according to the official account. I'm sure Cecil is keeping an eye on everyone as well at this stage. Catesby, however, has left. He left London on the 4th of November off to sort of activate the Midland side of the plot. And Winter is also in London. The plan is that Fawkes will light the fuse. It was apparently an 8 our fuse. You know, when we say a match, we don't mean these modern matches, we mean a long cord saturated in saltpetre. He would have made sure that it had happened, that everyone had died, and then he would have ridden off to the Midlands to confirm that it had succeeded. Of course, now he's in custody, so the others all bolt for the Midlands. Ambrose Rookwood is such a fine rider that he actually overtakes Catesby and he finds him in Bedfordshire, I think, and so he's the one who says the Catesby this is not worked out how we want it to. Catesby, incredibly madly, decides that we will still go ahead with it. So he tells all the Midland hunting party that the king is dead and now is the time to rise up. And they don't want anything to do with it, understandably. And his support completely melts away. So they're back to this very small group. They're sort of outlaws, they're young guns. And they go from house to house in the Midlands, stealing horses, stealing money, stealing weapons. They end up in Holbeach House in Staffordshire and it is very Butch and Sundance in the end. They come out shooting and they're all killed but it also has sort of an element of farce because the night before it had been raining and the gunpowder that they had was saturated so they decide to lay it out in front of the fire to dry it. We're in shoe bomber territory here. Yes you're right it kind of in some ways it, it absolutely could have happened and in other ways it's a farce almost but I think a lot of these almost sort of pack of wolves rather than lone wolves but these plots you know you don't need to be a massive brain you just need to have this terrifying conviction that what you're doing is right and that you will stop at nothing to do it but the story goes that Catesby was mortally wounded by the same bullet that hit Percy but he managed to crawl back into Holbeach House and into the chapel and he was found dead clutching an image of the Virgin Mary so again as you say it's sort of Some of these details are just almost too good to be true in these accounts. That's, I think, why the Gunpowder plot will always be just this sort of perfect capsule of a story because it has these very, very deep roots that tell us so much about the period before. It has a hell of a long afterburn in terms of legacy. But just in terms of the moment, you know, you have location and you have plot and you have characters and you have tension and jeopardy and farce and all of it and then above all you have resonance because terror and faith unfortunately will always be with us. There's a striking
2: similarity between Guy Fawkes and the Vaux family. Does that come into play at all in this story or am I just looking for a pun?
3: They're not related but many people thought that they were at the time and also it doesn't help with this sort of idiosyncratic early modern spelling. So Vaux is often spelled V-A-U-K-E-S. It's sometimes spelled with an F. Guy Fawkes also is sometimes spelled F-A-U-X. So it is, I think, unfortunately for the Vaux sisters particularly, that they're in the thick of it anyway in terms of what they know, even though Anne Vaux tried to stop it. But their name will ever after be associated with forks, certainly at the time it was. And again, it just sort of shows that these networks are very, very intimate. I remember Jason Burke, who writes for The Guardian, about written brilliant books about 9-11 and al-Qaeda and Islamic militancy. And he's saying the parallels are just so extraordinary in terms of these mini, mini networks and these families and friends and kin and how everyone seems to be related one way or another. And I think that is, in a way, the most striking parallel from then and now, although there are many, and we certainly don't need to force them because they're there.
2: What happened to Anne Walks after the gunpowder plot?
3: She was harbouring Henry Garnet in the Midlands. So at the time of the Holbeach shootout, they are in the Midlands. They end up in a house called Hindlip Hall in Worcestershire. And Garnet is pretty much in the priest hole the whole time. You know, it's very dodgy. He writes letters that get snuck out to the state saying, I am innocent. The state is actually trying, certainly from January 1606, trying to pin it on the Jesuits. It suits the narrative that it is this Jesuit plot, because England is Protestant and providential and James has been blessed and it just works very well to blame it all on the Jesuits. And Henry Garnish is trying to exculpate himself and say it's got nothing to do with me. Anne is sheltering him, harbouring him. But in the end, there's a raid on the house. It goes on for over a week. Garnet is in the hole, in his priest hole. And in the end, they sort of break through the walls around him so much that he comes out and he's in a terrible state. And they take him to the Tower of London. They threaten torture. They probably don't torture him in the end. But Anne then follows him to London and sends him letters. She writes them in orange juice, invisible ink. It's a wonderful thing. You can do it with your children. You write a letter with orange juice and let it dry. And then if you put an iron over it or a flame under it, the heat will come out again. It's a lovely sort of image for Anne herself because she's sort of invisible until the heat is on. Anyway, she has these letters, these exchanges with Garnet, and he conveys instructions for the mission, the Jesuit mission, through her. He is eventually executed. He is the fool guy ultimately for the whole thing, even though that's very unfair. But at the time it was seen as a Jesuit plot and he was the chief. Anne lasts well into the 17th century, well into the 1620s. And she carries on harboring priests. She carries on educating children. She runs a school, a secret Catholic school, and she goes under various aliases and she lives this extraordinary life, but dies quietly, we don't know when, an unmarked grave. She's an extraordinary figure. I sort of admire her in so many ways, and yet she's deeply compromised too. And her account, Garnet's account, is that she tried to stop it, and I believe that. But she must have had moments, serious conundrums and dilemmas about how to support these priests when some of them undoubtedly end up sanctioning plots. Not Garnet, but I'm thinking some of the plots of the 1580s. There are so many grey areas, there are so many dilemmas on every day, plus she has chronic ill health and just this tense, horrible feeling that every morning there might be a raid on your house. Extraordinary burden for the Virgin, as she was known. So she's the other Virgin in Elizabeth's Reign, the one we don't know about.
2: So just to come to an end then, we know of course that Guy Fawkes is executed horribly and you've mentioned the legacy of the gunpowder plot, and also these parallels to fundamentalism and persecution and terrorism in our modern world. What would you say the legacy was, and what can we learn by studying this episode that might be of relevance today?
3: I'm glad I'm a historian and not a politician, for a start, because we have two types of terror, don't we? We have the terror of the state, and we have the terror of terrorism, and how on earth you navigate that is very difficult. It's that age-old question, you know, what price security? What price liberty? I think in terms of legacy, it's a bit like, as you were saying with the priesthoods, it's almost a sort of fun thing. And it's a fun story. And it's an easy story for children to learn at school. But I think, in a way, the gunpowder plot is bigger than that. You cannot exaggerate it. To tell it and know it is enough, said the Attorney General, it goes through, it's seen as this sort of step towards the apocalypse. It's been called an icon event, along with the Armada and various others. And it becomes very much part of this Protestant national sensibility. And that's part of why anti-popery is such a powerful cultural force. If you look at the Civil War of the 17th century, anti-popery is one of the Huge most important factors in it this fear that Charles I, ironically, a Stuart, is being infected, is being undermined by Catholicism just as powerfully, if not as obviously, as 36 barrels of gunpowder would have done. And that is one of the great, great fears and one of the motivating factors and forces for the Puritan Revolution of the Civil War. The legacy goes on way beyond that, too. I mean, if you look at the act of settlement. It's got some incredible anti-papal weeds in it. I mean, it was only in 2013 that the law was changed to allow an heir to a throne married to a Catholic to keep their place in the succession line. I'm not Catholic, but I think some Catholics would argue that it's still the last prejudice. You know, you can still bash the Catholics in a way that you can't with other faiths. It's just one of those things that if we understand our history... We have to get to grips with this on a religious level, but on a political level too. So I think that's one of the things you and I both try and do more than anything, is to explain to people that religion is just so fascinating to study and so important. And just because church can be boring, or you might have once heard a crappy sermon, you know, do not be put off by religion because it is just the most interesting thing to study.
2: Well, this has been the most interesting chat. Thank you so much for taking us through this wonderfully complex and nuanced understanding of the later years of Elizabeth's reign, and then this great event, and as you say, we shall certainly have to think twice when we get to the fifth of November this year about whether it's something we really should be or want to mark anymore. Thanks,
3: Jessie. Thank you so much, Susie. It's been a pleasure as always. Before we finish, may I take
2: a moment to shamelessly promote two of my books that are just coming out. So you can order a book I've been working on called What is History Now? So that's what is history, comma, now, question mark. I've edited it with Helen Carr, author of The Red Prince, a book about John of Gaunt. And if you've ever studied history, you might well have come across What is History?, a book published in 1961 by E.H. Carr, in which he argued that history is interpretation. is a classic text. Well, it's 60 years on from that, and Helen Carr, who is E.H. Carr's great-granddaughter and I, have collected 19 essays from some stellar historians, people like Simon Sharma, Peter Frankopan, Maya Jasanoff, Rana Mitter, Bettany Hughes and others, to explore, well, what history is now. So it sets out to answer questions like... How can we write the history of empire? Why does history deserve to be at the movies? Can and should we queer the past? I've written a chapter called How Can We Recover the Lost Lives of Women? And it's available as a hardback and also as an audiobook on Audible, etc. I've voiced half the introduction and my chapter. And you can also now order an audio version of my book, A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England, from Audible or direct from Penguin. It's a book about where history happened. It introduces 50 of the best and most interesting surviving Tudor houses, palaces, castles, places in England. And it offers a potted guide to the key characters, stories and events of the Tudor age. So from Hampton Court Palace to Montacute House, Tutbury Castle to Hardwick Hall, a 500-year-old tree in Wyndham in Norfolk, or a simple memorial in a road in Broad Street, Oxford, It's designed to give you a sense of walking in the footsteps of some of the great iconic figures of the Tudor age. That's called A Visitor's Companion to Tudor England, and it's out on the 30th of September Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age –